listening to Right Where You Are Sitting Now. Hi, welcome to episode 35 of Sitting Now, the podcast for the site sittingnow.co.uk. I'm Ken Eakins, and joining me is the uh, ever-present man of podcasting, Mr. Raymond Wiley. How are you doing, sir? Doing very well, that's right. I have uh, a 20-year lease on podcast land. So <laughs> you here are- I am once again. You own the market. We're contractually obliged to have Raymond on, you see. Uh, That's uh, exactly right. No one can make podcasts without me. <laughs> so how's life been treating you anyway? Oh, life's been treating me very well, Ken. Working hard at the disinformation company and uh, also doing some, some revamping work on Out There Radio, its web presence and such. Which, um, it has a badass header. Oh, it has a badass header, Ken. Thank you very much for making it. It's been sort of a group effort. So, mm. um, yeah, so just trying to bring some of my old podcasts up into Web 2.5 or wherever we are now and, uh, um, you know, promoting books and releases for the disinformation company. So it's funny. We're actually talking to a former disinfonaut tonight on the show. Indeed, indeed. He's uh, Brian Butler, but we'll talk a little bit more about him after this advert break. Excuse me, I've got some information I'd like to share with you. Did you know that 26 billion pickles are packed each year in the U.S.? That's about 9 pounds of pickles per person. More than half the cucumbers grown in the U.S. are made into pickles. Hey, pickle boy, let's talk pickles. The Podcast Pickle, that is. The Podcast Pickle is your resource for all the latest and greatest podcasts found in cyberspace with thousands of podcasts listed and more added every day. Here's some of the podcasts that you'll find at podcastpickle.com. <laughs> Geek Foo Action Grip. Beachcast. Comic Geek Speak. Speechless. Mad King. This Week in Tech. Warren Town Talk. NASCAR Zone. Shelly the Republican. A Voice from Eden. Jimmy McBean. Five Minutes with Wichita. Cinema Playground. Offbeat. The Logo Factory. The Exit 50. This and That with Jeff and Pat. Thoughts on Psychiatry. Web Hosting Show. Merlin from Berlin. Random Cast. Jazz with Tiger. American Road Trip Show. The Drew M Podcast. The Slam Idol Podcast. Forgotten Tales. The Zencast. XboxStation.net. How to Do Stuff. <laughs> Now, Pickle has a whole new meaning. PodcastPickle.com, the world's best podcast directory. Airy Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Listener feedback. Really looking forward to the new episodes, so keep up with your work, guys. Thanks. Interviews. There's so many movies, so many documentaries, even books that come out that have factual information in it that maybe, you know, this is a gradual way of, of kind of educating the public to as to what's going on. Visit Erie Radio at www.erieradio.com. back and so uh we've got quite an interesting show today raymond who are we who are we talking about today uh we're talking about jack parsons ken he's a sort of notable occult figure from the mid 20th century i uh, love saying like 20th century now i know it's weird isn't it (laughs) so long ago anyway jack uh whiteside parsons uh occult 
figure from the mid 20th century, sort of a link between the people that are still around in the scene today and people that were around back in the days of Aleister Crowley. And in fact, Parsons knew Aleister Crowley, uh, was a member of the OTO, the AA, and many other magical lodges, and had a similar interest in uh, like sex magic and other things that Crowley uh, was into. And he actually knew Crowley. Yeah. But what's most interesting about this fellow it's not that he was, you know, on the occult scene. There are plenty of people like that, especially in crazy old California. But it was the fact that he worked for JPL and was Jet Propulsion Laboratories back in the 1950s and was one of the leading uh, figures in the early space uh, technology, uh, early development of space technology, especially solid rocket fuel. So this guy, Jack Parsons, helped the U.S., not the U.K., Ken, helped the U.S. <laughs> get into space and also strangely was connected to Aleister Crowley, the occult, and L. Ron Hubbard. So the, we're going to talk about him today. The British uh, with, occultist, uh, Aleister Crowley. You know. uh, the, yes, that's right, the British <laughs> occultist. He didn't seem to like to live in your country, though, I noticed. Even even <laughs> even, even Boleskin really isn't England. So I think he was kind uh, of uh, forcibly retired down the road from me as well. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. Uh, I remember when we were in England, Ken, hanging out, and you were like, oh, let me take you to where he was cremated. I'm yeah. like, oh, wow. That's I've been waiting for this moment all my life. Alistair Cromie's. Crowley's cremation site. Yeah, just up the road from where I live. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, so tell us about our guest who's going to help us tell this story of Jack Parsons, Ken. Brian Butler, he's he's I guess you could say a protege of some sorts of uh, Kenneth Anger. Very well. Again, another link to to the uh, original OTO, I guess through lineage at least. Brian's an occultist himself. He's a filmmaker. He's worked, like you said earlier, on... um, I think originally he worked on the Disinformation TV show uh, project with Richard Metzger. Yeah, so he's he's made a few short films that are kind of, I I suppose, Kenneth Anger-esque in in many ways. They're influenced by Kenneth Anger and uh, they're kind of very evocative short pieces that um, that kind of seem to centre mainly around occult ritual. Uh, he's uh, he's come to the UK actually at the end of this month to um, to screen his new film called The Night of Pan, which actually features Kenneth Anger uh, as a character, I suppose, as an actor rather than a director, and Vincent Gallo. And it's uh, it's I reckon it's going to be an awesome film. I've seen you can actually pull up a clip of it. We've got it on the site if you scoop, uh, search Night of Pan. Um, but yeah, I mean, other than that, he's also written quite extensively on the subject of Jack Parsons. For uh, he, he was on the disinfo book called The Book of Lies, or Book of Lies, I should say. Uh, and there's an essay by him about Marjorie Cameron, I believe, who was Jack Parsons' uh, scarlet woman. Um, so yeah, he's quite uh, a guy that's uh, connected through uh, through Kenneth Anger back to the original OTO. So it's it's kind of interesting to. Get his point of view on the uh, on the happenings of Jack Parsons. Yeah, absolutely, and, and you know, an insider's view on Kenneth Anger and his his filmmaking style. So, yeah, I'll tell you what, man. I wish I had a Scarlet Woman. Like, <laughs> like, haven't I earned it? Haven't Haven't I been mayor of Podcast Land for long enough? But have you sacrificed many goats? I'll never tell, Ken. You're the you're the Satanist here, anyway. What are you talking about? <laughs> Ooh, I see. It's like that, is it? Right? Okay. <laughs> I am the who-footed well, fo- so, one. Has there been both. any more accusations of your Satanism lately? Um, no, not recently. No, I think the uh, I think the vigilant citizen has been uh, has been off my case re- recently. <laughs> so that's a uh, 
I don't know if well, anyone... Then that means we need to figure out some new way to piss off the fungies. Yeah, definitely. So. There's nothing more fun than, uh, than kind of teasing conspiracy theorists, but as you probably well know yourself. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, so, I mean, when like, I say conspiracy... teasing people with conspiracy theories, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, not to not to mock any of our former guests or anything like that. When I say conspiracy theorists, I mean sort of you know irritating people behind computer screens mainly. <laughs> but anyway, oh, flame warriors. Yeah, flame not... warriors indeed. But we digress. Um, we should, I guess, go to the interview now, and we'll speak to you guys afterwards. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. I really appreciate you giving us some of your time. Um, could you give us a, a kind of brief biography of yourself, please? I'm a filmmaker, a writer, and musician. Um, I worked uh, with disinformation quite a bit. I published an essay uh, in their book of lies about Marjorie Cameron, and I uh, produced several segments for their uh, documentary TV series, uh, one on Satanism, and uh, in music I played uh, and recorded with uh, Roz Williams of Christian Death. I played with Von Elmo in New York and uh, various other projects, solo stuff. And I have a, uh, a sound multimedia project with Kenneth Anger called Technicolor Skull. Okay, cool. Well, we brought you on to talk to you about a variety of things today, but one of the main things we want to talk to you about is... Uh a uh, well-known character in the occult world called Jack Parsons. Could you, uh, could you give us a little bit of, a, of background on Jack Parsons? You know, h- how did he grow up? What was the kind of social climate of his time? Well, he was, uh, yeah, he grew up in, you know, the 30s and 40s. And um, I guess it was much more conservative then. He was uh, living in Pasadena. And uh, he, uh, you know, I guess at that time, the ideas of Thelema and Aleister Crowley were... Um, a lot more controversial than they are now. So it was much more of a kind of uh, controversial thing to kind of get into, wasn't it? Yeah, at the time. a bit more obscure, you know. So, I mean, one of the famous stories is that he apparently evoked Satan at age 13. Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of a common thing for someone that uh, gets into magic. I think it was the same for Aleister Crowley. That's sort of the first uh, yeah, step. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I was say that. Gotta yeah. get that out of the way, you know? Yeah, I think yeah, he uh, tried to... He sort of called himself a Satanist for a while, didn't he, Crowley? And yeah, <laughs> when he was like quite young, at the same sort of age, I think actually. So. Yeah, I think that's that's a way of sort of simplifying the occult for people. You know, most people can understand or respond to is Satan. You know. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a and Western magic or uh, you know Kabbalah. People usually, especially then, you know, had no idea what that meant. We'll get back into it a bit more later on, but do you think that maybe? part of the reason for that is kind of some of the films of the time and the way that the occult was kind of portrayed in the media 
in that time. Yeah, definitely. And I would say, you know, and that's what happened with Aleister Crowley is that's how he really, uh, you know, got famous was through the British tabloids that really had a, a distorted view of what he was doing and sensationalized it in a satanic way, you know? Mm, yeah, definitely. Okay, so, I mean, we won't talk too much about this because we kind of want to get into the, the magical nitty-gritty, as it were, but um, Jack Parsons is also well-known for uh, his scientific work and um, I, I guess most famously for his rocket science. Um, could you maybe talk a little bit? I think there's a kind of connection, isn't there, between his kind of scientific work and his, and his occult work. Um, how did the two kind of cross over for him, if that makes sense? Um, I would say, yeah, because I think a lot of his uh, scientific work was creative and very intuitive you know, the way that he made some of his discoveries and the way that he worked uh, was very intuitive and which is, you know, it's how the magic works as well, you know, uh, kind of uh, by doing, you know, rather than analyzing too much. What kind of age did he and, and how did he discover um, Crowley's Thelema? He discovered it um, through uh, science fiction, you know, through uh, his like science fiction book club. He was, uh, they had, it was like Forrest Ackerman um, arranged meetings with like different sci-fi authors, you know. Um, I think that's when Hubbard was, you know, kind of involved. So there was a, like a body of literature that they were, you know, interested in. And uh, Crowley was sort of an influence on that work you know yeah i mean you often hear about kind of um mystical practices and occult practices having an effect on uh i guess like science fiction and i mean philip k dick would be another good example of that and you know that kind of uh crossover where people are trying to draw imagination i guess you know for for, for stories <laughs> i guess that's yeah kind of, yeah definitely one of the things okay so um could you talk a little bit about uh do you know who wilfred t smith is and the kind of uh relationship he had with uh jack parsons well, Smith was the uh, leader of the uh, OTO Lodge at the time that Parsons uh, became interested. And uh, I guess in the beginning, he was sort of a teacher to uh, Jack Parsons in magic. And it was his, uh, through Smith, that Parsons came into contact with Aleister Crowley. Mm. And then how would you say um, uh, Parsons' relationship with Crowley uh, evolved <laughs> as it were because I, I, I know it became a bit more turbulent didn't it yeah I mean I think Crowley uh, definitely saw the potential in Jack Parsons but he also saw a weakness in that Parsons was being taken advantage of by Smith to a certain degree and definitely by L. Ron Hubbard mm. and uh, later on even not taken advantage of but uh, overpowered maybe by Cameron you know so, uh, and he was very, uh, like I said, he was very intuitive and maybe adventurous and he would, uh, you know, sort of jump into, uh, certain practices with maybe without enough preparation, you know? I think that was common if we look at, at the young, at the people that Crowley worked with over the course of his career when he would take on sort of a younger protege, um, they weren't always these occult experts. They were often just very sort of starry eyed. Do you think Parsons was sort of the same way? I mean, he, I mean, he he is sort of manipulated by a lot of different people uh, during this period, during this initial period, anyway. Yeah, and the system is so complex too. 
it's you know it's very it's very difficult to um, even get a grasp on it in a short period of time. You know, so um, he was very much you know open to the ideas of those around him, such as Smith and uh, and Crowley. The lodge he became a member of, I think it's called, is it Agape Lodge or Agape? I can't pronounce that word. Yeah, Agape Lodge in Pasadena. Yeah, so I mean, uh, can you tell us a bit about kind of like how he kind of uh, progressed, uh, I should say. I mean, he he was quite a a dutiful candidate, wasn't he, (laughs) in terms of uh, his progression through the order and... You know, it ended up with him. I think eventually leading the the uh, lodge at one point. Yeah, yeah, it was very rapid, and I think he kind of um, outran a lot of the people that were involved uh, in the Pasadena Lodge, and uh, I guess sort of yeah left the OTO uh, more for AA, an AA path or um, witchcraft, yeah, which he yeah. was into later on. I mean, we'll talk about the witchcraft uh, a little bit later on because that kind of really takes a hold later in um, in Parsons' kind of magical career, I suppose. Um, but could you talk about kind of some of the other members that were involved in the Agape Lodge at this time? Because I think there were some quite uh, prominent characters of their time involved. Yeah, I mean, one was uh, Lewis Culling, who was, um, you know, uh, sort of the protege of C.F. Russell, who had a very interesting system of magic. Um, there was Jane Wolfe, who um, spent time at the Abbey of Salima, you know, and was, you know, uh, initiated by Crowley. Mm. Um, Grady McMurtry, who, um, you know, later uh, led a different OTO in California. And... Uh, yeah, there was quite a few characters around at that time. So you say that uh, I mean Parsons ended up leading the Agape Lodge, and was this uh, how how do you reckon this was received? Because I think he actually overtook, like you said, some of the people that were higher ranked than him in the first place, didn't he? he kind of sort of ended up kind of uh, flying through the ranks, as it were, and I think that kind of caused some sort of a bit of dissension, didn't it? Really? Yeah, I think so. I mean, in any kind of group, you have that where everyone sort of tends to a certain level, and if someone breaks away from that and uh, progresses at their own rate, then it, it causes problems. You know, uh, before that was with Aleister Crowley and the Golden Dawn. Yeah. And uh, I think that's why the AA was was probably a better system for for Jack Parsons. You know. Yeah. Do you think that maybe in some ways, especially earlier on, the Crowley saw a bit of himself in Jack Parsons almost in the kind of way in, in, in their kind of stories are quite similar, aren't they, in some ways? Yeah, I'd say definitely they were they were both very adventurous and bordering on reckless, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, one thing that um, Parsons is often kind of, I guess, tarred with is that he, he has a kind of obsession with sex magic uh, that keeps rearing its head throughout his kind of writings and his career definitely i would say that was the basis of all his important work was uh you know around uh babylon and the uh uh workings uh you know with um the enochian tablets and uh and you know sex magic the ninth degree i mean there's that famous letter uh ninth degree uh, emblems and modes of use which was written to Crow- uh, to Parsons by Crowley which basically spells out the ninth degree working yeah and yeah I think we we talk, uh, spoke about that a little bit we, we interviewed uh, Donald Michael Craig recently who wrote uh, modern magic and 
some and sex modern sex magic and he's i think he goes uh speaks quite a lot about that in the, one of the episodes we did with him so if people want to hear about that they can check that episode but um okay so i mean earlier on we were um talking about the uh science fiction group that parsons was a member of and uh you, you brought up quite a famous name that he was involved with and i'm quite interested to talk to you about this because it's one of these areas that kind of lends itself to myth <laughs> quite a lot and that's the relationship between uh jack parsons and l ron hubbard obviously hubbard being the uh the founder of scientology and it's kind of a controversial character in his own <laughs> in his own way uh could you tell me about like kind of the relationship between the two like how did they meet obviously the, i assume they met at this this uh book club and kind of how their relationship progressed. Well, I guess, first of all, we have two kind of records of that. We have Parsons' version and we have Hubbard's version, mm. which are very different. So I'll go with Parsons' version. Um, they, you know, I think that Parsons was kind of fascinated uh, with Hubbard and admired, you know, his work in science fiction. And I think, it, you know, it was a bit mutual. And uh, with Hubbard having an interest in Aleister Crowley, and um, it was an interesting relationship, you know. Um, I think Hubbard had uh, the stronger personality of the two. Mm. And he kind of dominated their workings to a certain extent. But, you know, maybe Parsons needed that, you know. Somehow it worked, I think, between the two. Uh, did, uh, did Hubbard actually join the ATO or was he a kind of a side project, as it were? As far as I know, he never joined or took any of the oaths of the OTO. But he, um, through working with Parsons, uh, got a knowledge or understanding of a lot of the OTO workings, especially the ninth degree working. He often, <laughs> he claimed later, I mean... I don't know if our listeners know this. I can't remember if I've spoken about it before. I did my master's degree uh, thesis uh, looking sociologically at Scientology. So I ended up doing a lot of research into Hubbard. And this is where I kind of, one of the times I really first came upon Jack Parsons is when I was studying, uh, you know, looking at Scientology. And uh, obviously Hubbard's version, like you said, is quite different. <laughs> he he claims that he was uh, trying to kind of uh, upset the ATO, didn't he? As some kind of uh, trying to bring down this quote, satanist group kind of thing how much how deep into the kind of uh the sort of culture of the ato do you think l ron hubbard actually managed to get or do you think he was kind of considered as a bit of a bit of a joke um i don't think he was uh because the oto is somewhat a social order you know Mm. rather than a magical one and i don't think hubbard really sought to become a member or join the order i think that he was very interested in, in the principles of uh some of the uh magical workings especially you know sex magic i think that he just sort of took what knowledge he could and some people you know say that he incorporated that or used that power to uh form his own order which was you know in some ways very successful yeah, I mean, a lot of people say you can see kind of Thelema uh, uh, in Dianetics. I don't know. Have you ever read Dianetics? A bit. You know, I find that stuff really hard to uh, yeah. <laughs> to get through. I mean, beyond a few pages. Uh, yeah. But I, I, I understand the overall principles. And uh, yeah, some of it has a parallel with Thelema. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's strange. I've I read some of it. <laughs> like you said, I, I find it quite difficult to read as well. It's a... Uh, you can sort of see 
sort of parts of Crowley in there almost, but at the same time, it's uh, I don't want to go there. I don't want to get sued. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, uh, okay. So uh, I guess this is a good time to start talking about uh, the Babylon working, which is a huge part of uh, Parson's life. Could you t- tell us what the Babylon working is and what Babylon is in, in terms of Philema? Um, Babylon is uh, sort of the feminine dark force in Thelema, it's uh, it's in the Kabbalah. It's uh, represented uh, by the uh, Binah, um, and it uh, if someone takes the oath of the abyss, which uh, Parsons did, uh, that is sort of the force beyond the abyss is the Babylon, you know, uh, hmm. force. And so he sought to bring this uh, force. Or to incarnate it through a magical child. Mm, and that's the moon child, isn't it? Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so in, in terms of um, the actual working, the idea is that I guess you invoke or evoke some kind of elemental, isn't it? And uh, uh, and then actually, yeah, like you said, produce a physical child. <laughs> and what's the kind of the point of the moon child then? I mean, what, what, what do they, what's the kind of... Uh, you know, in philemic terms, what's the, uh, I guess, the function of a moon child? Um, I guess it's kind of like, you you know, a homunculus or a golem. It's a, um, it's a being that's, uh, that's an elemental that has a very specific purpose, but it's a human being that, uh, you know, has a specific, uh, intent. Mm. Um, so it's in a human body, but I, you know, maybe it's not human. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And, uh, to ask for the invocation, you know, they first, he had to get an elemental mate to do this working, to create, you know, the, the, the magical child. Yeah. And I, I think it was during the Babylon working that, was it during the Babylon working he met Marjorie Cameron or is it, um, well, he yeah he did a first he did the first working was a collaboration with Hubbard mm. to get an elemental mate to do the Babylon working and shortly thereafter uh, Cameron appeared and he felt that that was the elemental that he had sought yeah the kind of scarlet woman as they call it yeah yeah okay and was that um this is the part where my kind of knowledge of Hubbard and Parsons' relationship becomes a little bit hazy because I know at some point. Around this kind of during this period, Hubbard runs away, doesn't he? With I think all of Parsons' money <laughs> or something along those lines. Yeah, I think they formed some kind of uh, entity uh, company, and um, Parsons, I guess, uh, left uh, with. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Hubbard left with uh, Parsons' woman and his money and his boat. Okay, and it wasn't it wasn't actually Marjorie though, was it that he left with, or was it? No, no okay, right. That's where I was get, <laughs> getting a bit right. confused. But um, okay, so obviously, could you talk a little bit about Marjorie's kind of relationship with Jack Parsons because this is a, another kind of big part of his life, <laughs> I'd say. But uh, um, this is obviously something that you've written about as well in uh, in the Book of Lies, um, the Disinfo book. But could you, yeah, just talk a little bit about their kind of relationship and kind of what hap- what went down basically between the two of them. <laughs> Um, um, again, I think that she was the stronger, you know, 
personality of the two. And uh, in the beginning, she wasn't aware that any kind of magic was going on, any kind of sex magic or anything like that. But later on, she became sort of a magical student. And there's, you know, there's correspondence between them where, you know, she's learning about, you know, the different books and the AA system. Mm. And um, she was more, yeah, just like, you know, I guess, yeah, his Scarlet Woman and his magical counterpart. One thing that came out of this uh, whole process, um, obviously the Book of the Law is the um, the, the kind of holy book of Philema, isn't the uh, received by Crowley. Um, Parsons claimed to have... Uh, received a fourth chapter didn't he of the book of the law i think it was called the book of babylon could you tell us a little bit about that chapter and kind of how it was received yeah that was received in in the desert i believe and uh very much in the same way as crowley received the book of the law um but i don't know if it was ever accepted widely um, there's not much documented about people studying or analyzing that book. So, uh, it almost seems to me like even if someone did kind of come up with a fourth chapter of the book of the law, no one would kind of believe it was the fourth chapter of the book of the law, if that makes sense. So it's kind of, uh, it's almost as if you could sort of see the same thing happening in Christianity, I suppose, where if someone came down, claimed that, you know, they were Jesus or they had a, a new Testament as it were it probably wouldn't be believed, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. It's like Alistair think... Crowley's Joseph Smith or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that it would have been better to create his own book rather than a book that would have to be accepted as a part of another system or another person's book. You know, I think that that, that you know, it was very difficult to do. And, uh yeah, so, yeah, I guess basically it didn't work. I mean, if his intent was to have that integrated and to be later published with the Book of the Law, like this is the next chapter that never happened or hasn't happened yet, you know. Yeah, definitely. So um, some people have argued that at kind of this point in his career, um, Parsons might have been going a bit bonkers or a bit mad. Um, but you could also argue that it was also it was just that he was trying to push it, push the kind of magical ritual and the magical experience to its kind of natural extreme what do you think about that kind of uh, assessment well he uh he took the oath of the abyss so um kind of uh he had the expected result you know uh the same thing happened with uh with jones uh maybe not so much with crowley um but crowley actually went through the grades of the order you know um parsons took the oath of the abyss you know without taking the uh, grades that were sort of a preliminary to that. So uh, in some ways, that's kind of evoking madness upon yourself, you mm. know? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, it's almost a lot of... Uh, I, I was talking to someone that is a member of the ATO recently. He's quite a fan of Jack Parsons. And he, he was saying that he felt that had Parsons survived, he might have actually started up his own kind of his own order as it were um did you have you ever heard anything about this i mean do you, do you think he would have eventually left the ato and started his own kind of his own take on thelema as it were well yeah i know that he had um aspirations to start a magical school i think it was uh in israel mm. actually so what actually happened to him i've heard it was uh, sort of uh, unclear 
how he he died or um the circumstances of his death I guess it's a little bit questionable, you know, was it, uh, you know, was he murdered? Was it a suicide? Was it an accident? I mean, I guess there's no way to ever really know. Mm. Uh, but I guess the, you know, the accepted version is that it was an accident, that he was working with some, you know, hazardous materials and there was an explosion. And But he was the only one there, so we'll probably never know. What do you think of the idea that it was some sort of a cult ritual gone wrong? Because we've heard that sort of kicked around a little bit. Well, I mean, you could, I would say maybe uh, in a greater sense, if you could say that his life was an occult ritual. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but I don't think that he was actually, you know, using explosives in a in a magical ritual that, you know, like you did, you know, one day you just said, I'm going to do a ritual and do this. I think, you know. It was maybe even predicted, you know, in in his book, you know, that he would um, have a, a, you know, a violent or, uh, you know, fiery death. You also said uh, potentially it was a, a, a suicide. And I've had that theory as well myself. Why why would he want to commit suicide? Do you think it, maybe he, I don't know, reached some kind of limit or? <laughs> um, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't personally think that it was a suicide, but that's just like an obvious, you know, uh, conclusion that some people would have, you know, if it wasn't an accident, it was a suicide, but I can't see anything in his life or writings that would, uh, indicate it was a suicide. Yeah. Okay. So just uh, before we, um, uh, sort of continue, uh, talking about some other subjects, really, what, why do you think Jack Parsons is one of these sort of characters that's kind of survived the uh, the test of time? He's almost like a kind of, uh, I guess, a, a slightly latter-day Crowley in his infamy, as it were. Why do you think his him in particular? He seems to be the kind of, uh, well, you know, one of the kind of next. You think when you think about the ATA, you think instantly of Crowley, but the next person you think of normally would be Jack Parsons. Why do you think that is? Why is it that he's kind of so uh, revered in the in the occult world? Still, um, I would say for several reasons. Uh, one would be his uh, credibility. You know, he had he was respected for his scientific work, which uh, you know not so many people that are, you know are associated with Thelema or, or you know are famous in that way for something else. You know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, another reason is he he documented a lot of the things that he did were well documented, and he wrote. You know, and he he came up with this book of uh, Babylon and the book of the Antichrist where he documented his experiments. Mm. So that's kind of, and obviously the way that he died was very, you know, uh, interesting at least. And uh, so those are the things that kind of make up a legend. Mm. So. Yeah, I, I'd also, also add that maybe it's to do with the kind of, the way he went about his magic as well. I mean, he was very, um, like Crowley, kind of took it to extremes. And, you know, you don't really sort of see a lot of uh, accounts of that kind of magic going on. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, with his whole Antichrist thing, he had a, you know, a certain level of charisma and uh, way that he did things. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so obviously um, there's a kind of, I guess connection between 
Parsons and your own film works <laughs> in some ways. Uh, it's maybe a slightly tenuous one, but obviously you work with Kenneth Anger and I believe Marjorie Cameron was actually in a Kenneth Anger film, wasn't she? Yes, inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. That's right, excellent. Okay, cool. So actually, let's just go back a bit. How did you kind of get into film and how did you end up kind of working with Kenneth Anger? I um, first got into film through uh, disinformation. I was... Uh, um, producing documentary segments for their television show. And it was through that that I met Kenneth Anger. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, I, I've been working for Disinformation myself, uh, doing podcasts for them. What was it like um, on the set and filming those original TV documentaries that became the Disinformation series? Um, it was, uh, you know, it was fun. It was interesting. Uh uh, you know, a lot of the things were shot in the field. Like I, I found this group of Satanists in Southern California and we went to uh, different locations, you know, in their temples or whatever and filmed them doing rituals. And so a lot of it was, you know, uh, there was, wasn't really as much of a set as uh, just uh, out in the field shooting stuff. Okay, cool. So can you tell us a bit about kind of some of the your kind of film projects rather than your documentary projects, if that makes sense? I mean, you've just done a documentary about Lucifer Rising, which I want to talk to you about a bit later, but you've also done some kind of uh, uh, features, mini feature films as well. Can you tell us a little bit about those and kind of like what kind of inspired you to do that kind of that type of filmmaking, I suppose? Um, well, I was definitely uh, influenced by Kenneth Anger. Um there, I've done a few uh, sort of uh, occult-influenced short films. Uh, one is Loch Ness Magic, where I went to uh, Boleskin House and the surrounding area in uh, Loch Ness, Scotland, and uh, filmed a ritual there and, uh, you know, the house and just the, tried to capture the, the atmosphere of like driving up to the house and just the uh, impression that I got. How Go did you, uh, how did you find it there? I mean, did you, did you kind of, uh, enjoy your time at Boleskin or? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very remote. I mean, the closest city is Inverness. So you can kind of see like for Crowley, it would have taken the whole day, you know, just to get to the house. And then, from the house, there's like just a small little post office and a store there. And that's kind of it. There's the Foyers Falls, which is, you know, um, I think Robert Burns also visited there. So it's a very, uh, you know, remote and kind of magically charged area. Mm. I'm not sure. Did you ever see the uh, documentary called The Other Loch Ness Monster that was produced uh, about Crowley and Boleskine? Yes, yes, I saw that. Yeah, what did you think of, of the? Uh, I don't know. Raymond came and visited us recently, and we we sat through that um, documentary, and it seems it's kind of amusing. <laughs> Almost, there seems to be kind of uh, uh, I don't know. It's a bit sensationalist at times. I found, but I don't know. yeah, yeah. I, I, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I remember it being uh, sensationalized, and I think they had uh, what Jimmy Page's childhood friend. They interviewed him, the guy that was sort of tending the house. Is yeah, that, yeah. Uh, and they had this amazing guy at the beginning. He's like kind of Scottish poet, I think. Who, uh, who? Uh, <laughs> it's kind of hard to explain. I, I, 
I, uh, You're just gonna have to do the impression. Yeah, he, <laughs> you're just gonna have to do it, man. He, he basically, <laughs> God, he's so out do of context. It. Do it, come he's, on. He goes, uh, I feel he's up there watching us now. I do. Angry, angry, but we would dare interfere with his life and his property. It's just the funniest thing you'll ever see, especially if you're drunk when you watch it. That's just what right. I say. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot like um, the BBC did a radio documentary about Crowley called The Beast of Boleskine. It was, I think, back in the 1970s. And it's a lot like that. You know, it plays up that whole sensationalist, he was so satanic aspect, you know, which, you know, I guess we were talking earlier about how uh, apostasy is often like this, this internal motivation for a lot of these um, people who become figures in the occult world. Uh, would you say that apostasy is uh, is something that drove you in your early years? Yeah, I would say definitely it is. I mean, because just the way that, you know, uh, we live in a, a culture that's basically Christian. Yeah. A lot of the ideals and morals that most people have in the U.S. or the U.K., I think, are basically Christian whether they admit it or not, you know? Often if they realize it or not as well. I think a lot of people don't realize that they uh, kind of embody these kind of morals and values that are actually christian morals and values and i think sometimes people don't actually even realize they're doing it yeah exactly so i mean you said you actually did you filmed a ritual up in Beleskin. can you tell us a little bit about the ritual and kind of how, how that went down you know it it went well it was just sort of a uh you know uh impromptu ritual on the grounds of Beleskin, and um it just the whole thing was just done it wasn't planned out that much it was just kind of brought the cameras and just kind of did it and then, you know, uh, did the editing when I got back and just created this piece in a spontaneous way. So, uh, yeah, I just sort of captured that moment that day, I felt, at, you know, at Beleskin House. Excellent. Before we talk about Night of Pan, you said you did another short film as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Well, no, as far as for avant-garde or, you know, short films, it's just two. Oh, it's, it's just two. Okay, cool. All right. Could you tell us a bit about Night of Pan then? Um, obviously, it's, it stars uh, Kenneth Anger and yourself and uh, Vincent Gallo. That's quite a quite a lineup you've got there. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's sort of an occult fantasy, and um, I just and again, this was one was it was a little more planned, but it was also very spontaneous. And I, you know, kind of just brought in. Uh, my friends, you know, I've been friends with Vincent for quite a long time and Kenneth and it just kind of worked out that they were both available to do it. And, you know, we just kind of figured it out like the day of the shoot, their characters and, uh, you know, their performance. Uh, one thing I know, I, th there's a short version of um, a kind of like micro version of the film up on YouTube, which I think it was, was it for a Japanese festival or something? Or? Um, it was for a festival in Beijing. Oh, Beijing. Um, yes, yeah, it was called One Dream Rush, and they selected uh, 42 directors, and each one made a 42-second film. So that was my contribution, my 42-second film. Yeah, one thing I noticed in that was that, uh, actually a friend noticed it and pointed out to me, was um, uh, Kenneth Anger seems to be made up to look a bit like uh, Crowley in, in the portrait of Crowley. Was that intentional? or? 
Yes, exactly. That was the inspiration for his character. Excellent. Cool. So can you tell us a bit about the, the Knight of Pan ritual and like kind of the crossover between the ritual of Knight? Because it's something to do with ego death, isn't it? Or something like that? Yeah, exactly. With, uh, you know, the idea of, of crossing the abyss and, and facing the, the mad god, you know, or uh, reason or logic or, you know, the sort of barrier between the rational mind and the spiritual world. How did you kind of try and represent that in the film? Like You said it was quite spontaneous, but was it must have been some, some kind of structure. Is there kind of like an integration of the actual Knight of Pan ritual into the film? Um, in a way, in a sort of abstract way, and Vincent represents the, the mad god or Pan, you know, mm. the sort of uh, uh, entity that you encounter. And... Um, so, you know, it's very um, avant-garde or abstract the way it's done. but And it also, it's it's on a very deep level, you know, like it communicates on a lot of different levels, yeah. I would say. Yeah, I'm quite looking forward to seeing it. Um, you say that Kenneth Anger was a big influence, and I'd say certainly visually uh, there seems to be a, an influence there with, you know, uh, with certainly with uh, films like Lucifer Rising and uh, Invocation of My Demon Brother, the kind of very uh the color the kind of colors you use of um and that kenneth anger uses as well what, what inspired uh, the only way i can really describe it to listeners that haven't seen it is it, with kind of like the 70s record covers does that make sense <laughs> kind of um that very kind of bright use of colors and uh, very kind of ethereal evocative colors is that something that um you you sort of uh were influenced directly from Kenneth Anger, or was that something you that kind of imagery you've always wanted to do yourself? Well, yeah, I'm definitely into that that type of music and that whole aesthetic of the '70s. So I would say it's a little of both, you know. Um, you're credited as being a producer on some of Kenneth Anger's films. Could you tell us about like kind of how that came about and uh, uh, kind of about the films you were a producer on? Yeah, I just basically uh, enable Kenneth to. Uh, create you know like so he can have his creative process and i take care of uh you know a lot of the logistics and planning and uh you know and whatever is needed like sometimes i'll operate the camera or do the editing or you know arrange the travel you know all the things that come under the umbrella of producing um i worked on ishville and brush of baphomet Oh yeah, I haven't seen that yet. Could you tell us a little bit about those two films? These are kind of I've only really seen up to I can't remember the ones that kind of like released on DVD, as it were. Um, I don't think these newer ones have been released yet, at least not over here anyway. But um, do you know if there's plans to release any of the new Kenneth Anger films, the newer Kenneth Anger films, I should say? Not at the moment, but I'm you know I'm sure they will eventually be released. But they mainly uh, are traveling, you know, uh, in different festivals and. Uh, events uh ishville is uh a film that kenneth had been working on since the 90s like even before i met him and it's a collection uh, of uh or it's created from found footage of the uh hitler youth and uh you know edited and uh you know made into a, a kenneth anger film yeah i mean that's something kenneth anger seems to be very um uh, interested in is sort of taking very evocative imagery and often quite controversial imagery. I remember, I can't remember which film it is, but the film, uh, which is the film where he's, uh, he, I think he's actually in it himself and he plays a sailor. I can't remember that one. Oh, uh, uh, fireworks. Yeah. I mean, that, and it's time that was a hugely, um, controversial thing to do, wasn't it? I mean, this is a time when, you know, for example, like homosexuality was very controversial still. And, 
again, he uh, he just tends to be very. I guess his name kind of implies it. You know, he, he tends to uh, be very interested in uh, pushing boundaries himself, doesn't he? And very kind of uh, evocative films and very evocative kind of uh, themes, I should say. You know, in his films, would you say that that maybe is carried over a bit? to your work at all or are you influenced in that respect as well uh yes definitely yes so you said that the, the brush of baphomet was the other film could you tell us a little bit about that because i've not even i've seen nothing about that film yet i mean that's my own laziness i think <laughs> more than anything but <laughs> yeah the brush of baphomet is um was filmed at the uh palais de tokyo in paris um there was an exhibit there of paintings by alistair crowley uh which were previously unseen uh they were from the period um in chefalu at the abbey of Thelema, mm. and they were just uh discovered a few years ago and uh a show was organized in paris and uh we went and uh you know made a kenneth anger film of these uh paintings is it a bit a little bit like the um the man they want to hang is it that kind of uh yeah in the sense that it's you know it's just paintings you know that's the only thing in the film and uh with with music and uh, a certain style of editing we've kind of spoken a lot about magic and kind of uh uh your films and the, the use of magical imagery so how has magic kind of affected your life i mean do you consider yourself a you know a magician or an occultist or how do you kind of uh, label yourself yeah i would say definitely i'm an occultist i've studied you know uh the occult for, you know, a long time. I did take an initiation into, you know, the Golden Dawn and the OTO, you know, initially. And I sort of just explored it on my own for a long time. And uh, how would you say that that kind of uh, explorations, in, I, I assume it has influenced your own filmmaking. I mean, w- would you say that in some ways your own films are magical rituals in their in you know in, in their own sense yeah i would say definitely in that they uh you know they are designed to you know alter someone's consciousness and also um work on maybe a subconscious or deeper level that might not be immediately apparent upon viewing the film one thing that really interests me and i really want to see it because I, I well as far as i know it hasn't come to the uk yet but which is technicolor skull which is the band you do with uh, kenneth anger can you tell us a bit about a like how it that ended up occurring and b what Technicolor Skull is and what what do you guys actually do? Technicolor Skull is sort of a multimedia sound perform and visual performance that uh, Kenneth Anger and I do. Um, I play the Moog synthesizer and guitar, and he plays the theremin. And we have a, a projection behind us, which is directed by Kenneth Anger, and. Um, our first performance was at the Donau Festival in uh, 2008 in Austria. Uh, we uh, also on the bill uh, were the Melvins. And also Ishville uh, premiered that same night. So that was an interesting uh, evening having the, this film of the Hitler Youth projected on three giant screens in sort of a rock concert setting before a performance. I, I don't know if you ever um, you, you mentioned the Melvins. You, uh, the, one of the members of the Melvins is in a band called Phantomus, and they did a, a kind of live soundtrack with John Zorn to uh, some of Kenneth Anger's films. Did you see that when it happened? Or actually, I didn't. That was quite a while ago. That was in New York. I can't remember what year that was, but no, I, I didn't see that. Okay. So, uh, do you have any plans to kind of um, 
release anything of Technicolor's goal, or is it strictly kind of uh, limited to live performance? Um, we'll see. We have some things in the works, and uh, we'll just see how it works out, but we don't have any definite release date at this time. How would you present it? Cause it like, I've seen some video clips of it, and it seems to be yourself with samplers or kind of pedals and uh, Kenneth Anger with a theremin. And then you're playing the kind of a live soundtrack almost, aren't you, to the films behind you? How would you actually? I guess that that, that would be one of the problems. Is how would you actually release that <laughs> as a kind of release? Um, I mean, it could be with a book of images, mm, you know, yeah. from the performance. And we do have some uh, footage of our performances as well, so it's possible a DVD. There's a lot of different avenues that we could uh, pursue yes. with that. That definitely be something. I'd be interested in uh, checking out. Do you have any plans to bring that over here to the UK at any point? Or um, we'll see. Again, we're you know we're we're talking about doing a few things, but nothing's definite. So uh, we'll see. Okay. Before we uh, let you go, I uh, want to talk a bit about Night of Pan being uh, screened in in London. But um, you've made a uh, documentary called Raising Lucifer. Um, which is a documentary about the film Lucifer Rising. I think it's actually about the production of the film Lucifer Rising, isn't it? Could you tell us a bit about why that film, and I agree it did need one, but why it needed a documentary? <laughs> um, well, because it's, it has such a long story. It took yeah, 13 yeah. years to make that film, and it was very dramatic, the, uh, the events you know, um, that surrounded the film, you know, uh, with with Bobby Beausoleil in the early days, and then his later uh, involvement with the Manson family and uh, murder conviction. Mm. Then you have, you know, Mick Jagger was involved, Jimmy Page, Marion Faithful, a lot of people that you know were very well known for various things. Yeah, it's quite an amazing I, film, really. I saw a lecture. Um, no, it wasn't a lecture. It was from on the Disinfo DVD, I think, the uh, Disinfo Con. Uh, talk with Kenneth Anger. He was talking about how um, he got access for that film via a member of the ATO who worked in Egypt or something. Is that included in the film? Because that's quite an interesting connection. Um, well, this is this is a short film, and this is just you know it's sort of like a, a small part of a larger project that I'd like to do. So this covers the early period of the film, uh, mainly between Kenneth Anger and Bobby Beausoleil, the sort of dynamic that was going on there. I, I know that Kenneth Anger often cites, um, uh, as is Jean Cocteau, as one of his influences. Would you say that Cocteau's had an influence on your work? Um, not so much. I'm not, you know, um, yeah, I wouldn't say as much. I'm, my influences are a bit later than that. You're finally bringing The Night of Pan to the UK, and uh when, could you tell us a little bit about the uh, the event you're, you guys are involved with in uh, in Feb? Well, this month actually. Yeah, it's gonna. You know, obviously, I'm going to show the film, and um, I'm going to do a live performance with a projection um, along with uh, Richard Fearless from Death in Vegas, and uh, we're just gonna bring out the synthes the Moog synthesizers, and uh, you know do a, a live uh, soundtrack to uh, some uh, film footage that, I, that I'm putting together for this event. All right, so it's, all right, so it's, it's going to be like it's a kind of uh, exclusive kind of for this event type film. Yeah, exactly, Excellent. exactly. And then um, Richard's going to DJ some sort of dark, uh, you know, uh, 
music, you know, sort of in that same vein as as the films and the and the live performance. Yeah, so the venue is the Horse Hospital, the Colonnade, Bloomsbury, London. Uh, and if you just Google the Horse Hospital, you'll be able to find it. And it's actually on the front page of the the site right now, so it should be pretty easy to you know uh, track down Brian's event. So, is there any uh, future projects you're working on that you can tell us about at the moment before you go? Or? Well, I'm working on a you know another film. Um, I'm working on uh, a book on the occult. Um, I have several projects in the in the works, which I. I I don't really want to talk about too much until I get, you know, an actual date of release. Yeah, that's fine. That's cool. Are you allowed to talk about the book at all in any way? That sounds quite interesting. Um, yeah, I guess I really can't because I don't, you know, nothing's set. So okay, I don't cool. Want... Don't want to jinx it. <laughs> that's fine. Well, thanks a lot for talking to us and giving us some of your time. I uh, really appreciate it. It's been, it's been fun, actually. So, uh, yeah, thanks a lot. Welcome to MySpace Heroes number 18 with me, Daddy Tank, and I intend to remain in glorious stereo. I don't think it's fair for me to deprive you of the rich, deep, quality timbre of my voice. Uh, so from now on, you'll be able to hear what the hell I'm saying. That whole load of dictaphone static in the background. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's a punchy little number this week. Uh, we've got Wakamia with Pretty Pretty, Waiting Life, It's In Your Court, and Wally Quid with Nebula.
propaganda rolling across the picket line. Lay down, GI. Lay down, GI. We saw it all through the 20th century. And now in the 21st century, it's time to stand up and realize that we should not allow ourselves to be crammed into this rat maze. We should not submit to dehumanization. I don't know about you, but I'm concerned with what's happening in this world. I'm concerned with the structure. I'm concerned with the systems of control. Those that control my life and those that seek to control it even more. I want freedom. That's what I want. And that's what you should want. It's up to each and every one of us to turn loose of just some of the greed, the hatred, the envy, and yes, the insecurities. Because that is the central mode of control. Make us feel pathetic, small. So we'll willingly give up our sovereignty, our liberty, our destiny. We have got to realize that we're being conditioned on a mass scale. Start challenging this corporate slave state. The 21st century is going to be a new century. Not the century of slavery, not the century of lies and issues of no significance and classism and statism and all the rest of the modes of control. It's going to be the age of humankind standing up for something pure and something right. What a bunch of garbage, liberal, democrat, conservative, republican. It's all there to control you, two sides of the same coin. Two management teams bidding for control, the CEO job of Slavery Incorporated. The truth is out there in front of you, but they lay out this buffet of lies. I'm sick of it, and I'm not going to take a bite out of it. Do you got me? Resistance is not futile. We're going to win this thing. Humankind is too good. We're not a bunch of underachievers. We're going to stand up, and we're going to be human beings. We're going to get fired up about the real things, the things that matter, creativity, and the dynamic human spirit that refuses to submit. Well, that's it. That's all i got to say. It's in your court.
and we're back. And uh, that was another great sound explosion from uh, Daddy Tank there with My Space Heroes. Many thanks to him for uh, continuing his uh, his music magic, as it were. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so how did the uh, interview go down with you, Mr. Wiley? Well, yeah, it was pretty comfortable. I was just sort of sitting here in my bedroom, you know, on the Skypes, so on the interwebs. But no, I, I you know, I enjoyed it. It was like I said before, it was great to get a point of view from someone who is like a direct link in many ways to our occult heroes of old. So, and uh, you know, to tell the story of Jack Parsons, I think was uh, was a guy we haven't really covered yet. I've never covered him on any of on any of my work, so it's good that you know, it's good that we got to. Him. Yeah, definitely. It's quite interesting that um, Parsons, one thing that I kind of really took from the interview was this kind of link almost sort of personality wise between Parsons and Crowley. Uh, there certainly seems to be a sort of similar historical kind of uh, pathway there <laughs> almost. If right, that right. Except for that Parsons seemed more of a follower yeah. than a leader. I don't think he ever really got the chance to grow into a leader there because so, he died so young. Or he died early, you know. Yeah. But um, unlike, well, well, I'll just put it to you this way: in many ways, he did far more for the human race than uh, even someone as famous and cool as Aleister Crowley, because uh, he helped, you know, get us up into space and such, which I think is, I think is what makes this the what makes this an interesting story. Yeah. You know. And I think also the connection with L. Ron Hubbard is something that really interested interested me as well. He's kind of. So, even though he's kind of a, in my eyes at least, a kind of strange, sinister character, Hubbard does seem to pop oh. up in the weirdest places, doesn't he? <laughs> oh, absolutely. And doing the exact L. Ron Hubbard-esque things you would expect. You know, yeah. he steals the guy's money, he steals the guy's girlfriend, and of course, he steals the guy's boat. Yeah. So, <laughs> and some could say he steals the guy's magic. But <laughs> right. And I, I, I'm sure the boat became like the, the flagship to the Sea Org later yeah. No, actually, we'll leave Scientology for another show. Oh yeah, that's that's another show in the making where I'll have a lawyer present throughout the entire. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Throughout the entire thing. Somehow, somehow they got. Somehow the Scientologist representatives got to us before we even did post production or posted the episode. We don't even know how. No. <laughs> that's episode thirty six, <laughs> but you'll suddenly notice that it, it skips to episode thirty seven <laughs> all of a sudden, right. <laughs> pending uh, pending the court case. But yeah. No, I think the other thing about Parsons is that, uh, and Crowley is, he's one of these guys that actually probably had the cash and the cojones, as it were, to kind of actually uh, kind of pull off some of these rituals. You know, you often, people seem to skip some of the more extreme side of, uh, of magic. I mean, often I don't often hear of modern magicians doing the Babylon ritual, for example. You know, I don't hear about Moonchilds being produced <laughs> if you know what i mean it seems to be one of those things that like like brian said it's kind of well documented and i think that's helped to kind of preserve the kind of legacy of jack parsons at least and that's kind of a... yeah he was far out you know i mean Moonchild. i mean isn't that exactly the plot of the film rosemary's baby pretty much I mean, i'm just i'm just saying so <laughs> wondering where that came from anyway thanks for uh, coming on the show with me again man it's always a, a pleasure to have you on and what, what are you working on at the moment uh, well, as always, I'm working on the Disinformation Podcast, which you can access at www.disinfo.com slash podcast, or you can just visit the Disinfo website and click on podcast. It's not only got uh, episodes of Disinformation, the podcast, which is an interview series, but it's also got episodes of Disinformation World News, which is a sort of weird, strange news 
show that we do about once a month and it features uh, myself, Joe McFall, uh, and uh, the uh, incorrigible Austin Gandy. So uh, you can check that out. He's a scoundrel. That's right. He's a scoundrel of occult magnitude. So um, you can check that out. And let's see what else. Uh, you can check out my original series, Out There Radio. It's a 50 episode series about the occult conspiracy theories and hidden history and other strange topics. And you can visit outthereradio.net uh, to check that out. And within the next few days, we're going to actually be launching a new version of the site so with a badass um, header with a badass header (laughs) and the site's no longer gonna look like you know from five years ago which is good and um it will also have iphone and android um interface tie-ins whatever you call it Uh, implementation i think is the word you're looking for yeah yeah (laughs) it'll also have um you know, uh, it'll also have a version of the site for iPhone or Android browsers. So, like I said, out there, radio.net, whether you're on your computer or your smartphone. That's the way to go. Out. That's definitely yeah. the way to go. And yeah, if you, we're actually going to be, I mean, I, by we, I mean the UK side of sitting now. I mean, Raymond may turn up, I suppose. We'll be at this uh, event uh, at the Horse Hospital in London. It's actually on the 20th of February. Um, and so if you want to come and hang out with us or you know just come and check the film out because it looks really really good i've only seen a short kind of version of the film but i'm really really as austin would say jazzed to to see the uh the full version and it sounds like quite an interesting event generally actually i think it'd be quite you know an evening to be had that's for sure i think so and you're going to post that on sittingnow.co.uk i will be indeed posting it on sittingnow.co.uk and i'm sure i'll be posting updates about it on twitter slash sittingnow and MySpace slashed it in now. Let's see what I did there, Raymond. <laughs> uh, I did, yes. Very, very good, Ken. Uh, very, very advanced podcasting there. Yeah, it was. Um, 3.0. And, uh, yeah, exactly. But I will probably be at the event in London with Kenneth Anger. I'm going to ride uh, across the Atlantic on a solid state rocket uh, devised by Jack Parsons. There you go. So I'll see you then. <laughs> Excellent. Well, yeah, uh, we'll be back next week with a man about a moth, and that's all I'm going to say. Um, and if you want to get in contact with us about anything, really, you can uh, either email me at ken at sittingnow.co.uk or you can go to our newly revived forum, which we finally got working again, which is quite good. So, yeah, if you have slight suggestions, show suggestions, guest suggestions, or you just want to kind of hurl insults at us or talk to us, uh, come to the forum at sittingnow.co.uk forward slash forum. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.